my guest today is Dr. Mohamed Albana. He is the founder and CEO of Huma Biologics, Inc. I'm going to let him explain exactly what they do, and then we're going to get into that a little bit. Dr. Albana, welcome to CC Life Science. Chris, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you here and share more information about what we do here at Human Biologics and how we help the scientists out there. All right. So this is different than anything I've done before, I, I am sure. So tell us a little bit about what Human Biologics does, and then we'll get into a very specific part of that. Sure. Human Biologics is a regenerative medicine company born and raised in the state of Arizona. We're actually manufacturing human-derived biomaterials uh, for regenerative medicine applications. Whether you would like to use a biomaterial to re-engineer a human tissue uh, or an organ, or you want to use it as a bio-ink for bioprinting human tissues and organs or create a disease models, where uh, you can test some drugs, look at their toxicity, and probably reduce the use of in developing new drugs and therapies. Nice. So what I'm interested in today is 3D bioprinting. I'm probably a little bit behind the curve on this, as I am on many things, but I'm hoping to catch up. So you and I had a previous conversation. Tell us a little bit about 3D bioprinting and Dr. Atala's bladder story. Yeah, sure. I was actually fortunate enough to be trained under Dr. Tony Atella more than actually 12 years. Dr. Atella leads the one of the largest regenerative medicine lab in the world in the state of North Carolina in Winston-Salem. He was one of the pioneers in the field of regenerative medicine, better known for creating the first human organ in a lab and implanting this into someone. So Dr. Atella, back in the old days when he was a urologist surgeon at Harvard, he actually created a bladder. And he took some cells from the patient and put them on that uh, material and created the bladder. And he implanted that into uh, uh, a baby at that time with a specific disease. And that baby is doing well after so many years and living with this basically organ. So the field of regenerative medicine is coming down to combine cells, materials, growth factors together. That is the basic definition of regenerative medicine where you are trying to replace, restore, or regenerate a missing function of a human tissue or an organ. So when you combine these uh, components together, you're actually trying to regenerate the tissue. You're trying to put together the tissue so it performs its function. So with the bioprinting, it's a concept that actually uh, started in the early uh, 2000s where people, they were looking for a technology or a tool that allow them to put cells and materials together in a very specific locations and be able to print complicated structures. Bioprinting is actually uh, uh, very useful if you are trying to print uh, a solid organ where you have a lot of uh, network inside that tissue. You have multiple different cell types and you want to put them in a specific locations in a, spe in a specific layer and in a special organized way to allow them to talk to each other and function. So that's really the concept of, of, of bioprinting and how we basically got into the field of regenerative medicine and allowed us to build a 3D uh, uh, constructs that they are actually more complicated that we were not able to do uh, using the simple traditional methods of casting tissues or using molds to make a 3D structure. 
Nice. So the multi-different cell type component there is the key. I want to ask, I just want to go back to the bladder story for a moment. Is he used cells from the original patient or exogenous yeah. cells to create that? We always say in the field of regenerative medicine, if you want to minimize or even eliminate the potential rejection is to use the patient own cells. However, in, in, in several cases, you might not have an available source of cells from the patient due to underlying causes of diseases or due to other donor morbidity or age of the donor simply that you cannot get some cells. In the case of stem cells, for example, the most available source for us is, is bone marrow derived stem cells. However, over age, the, the bone marrow in our bones is actually decreases which means basically the uh, available amount of stem cells in the bone marrow also decreases. So if you have a patient 60, 70, 80 years old, the availability of healthy and good functioning stem cells might not be available at that time. So that's when we look at other sources of stem cells that could be like from a different daughter, from a, and we call it allogeny. In the case of Dr. Atella bladder, it was actually a biopsy taken from the patient himself with the primary cells that they were actually bladder. So you take something already specialized and knows exactly what they need to do. You combine them with the material and you let it to the cells to basically take over and uh, take it. So that is, that is exactly the question I, I wanted to understand is I'm thinking if there's a reason to have this bladder be replaced, are the cells from the donor in this case not necessarily affected by the underlying causes that made replacement necessary. So perfectly good cells, but some other reason why you needed to make a new bladder. Absolutely. The obvious sometimes like in a time that the obvious reason sometimes is actually the time. If you're going to take cells from the patients, you need to grow them in the lab so you can get a sufficient number. That's actually add a lot of time to the process. In some cases, as I mentioned, if you are doing elective surgeries, you have the luxury of waiting for uh, a few weeks until you get your cells uh, up and running. In some other cases for certain diseases, you might not have several weeks. If you're actually in the case of 3D printing a human skin for excessive burn injuries, you might not have the time to go down to the patient, take a biopsy from their skin, go back to the lab, grow the cells for several weeks. And by that time, your patient does not have skin. He's more susceptible to infection and other uh, issues that might happen during that time. So you need to act immediately. And that's one of the advantages of really using allogeneic cells that you can have them as off the shelf to create the therapies. And when you have actually the need for some, for the treatment or the product, you can immediately use them on the patients. The less time the patient spends in the hospital, the better. It's better for the healthcare. It's better for the physicians. It's better for the patient himself, reducing the risk of catching a, a cold or a flu from the hospital and so on, and lessen the burden on the healthcare system. Yeah. It seems like transplantation is more the exception for the use of these human-derived biological materials. What are the more immediate uses for 3D bioprinting specifically? I think that the transplant is, is a very complicated process. 
when you work with solid organs, you, when you work with highly vascularized uh, organs, the process of recreating that organ is very complicated. So whether you are actually using a bioprinting technology, you are using a biomaterial, you are using cells, there are more limitations than what we can understand at this time and be able to achieve. So for example, with solid organs, when we work with the kidney, for example, there are more than 20 different types of cells. They are found in the kidney that they work together to basically achieve a, a, a function that to some people might be very simple, that is just clearing up the blood and just create urine. So putting those cells back where they with the same exact concentration at the same exact location might not be an easy process. To keep that organ actually vascularized and healthy and getting blood supplies for those cells to stay alive, that's actually another challenge. So with, with the promise of bioprinting, I think we, as you mentioned, that we have a lot of different applications that they are of a high importance and need out there that we can actually tap into. One example, for, for instance, is the idea of creating a 3D tissue models. If we want to develop uh, uh, human tissue models where we better understand how an infection can happen, for example, in the case of the corona, trying to understand how a virus infects the cells, what's happening or what changes can happen on the cells. Once we understand the mechanism of infection, we will be better suited to basically come up with a quick and more efficient therapy, knowing that we need to target one, two, three, four. If you want to take it to another level where we can create a disease model, for example, trying to understand at that time how we can test a drug and what's the uh, impact of that drug on the, on, on the cells. What's the toxicity for the drug? How the cells going to respond in maybe different organs to the drug that might be actually targeting the heart. We will see how the liver is going to respond to that or how basically maybe the vascularization or the hemodynamic environment will change because of that drug. We can even take it to another step. If, if we are looking at cancer drugs, we know every patient is different, every cancer type is different, every, every response is different. So if we can actually, for example, take a biopsy from the patient and create a cancer model in the lab, we not only will be able to discover new drugs and test them more efficiently and quickly, we will be able to probably end up with a more of a personalized cancer treatment for each patient in terms of the type of drug, the dose, and so on. So we don't have to subject the patients to treatments that might not really work very well for their cancer type and add a, a lot of unnecessary uh, struggle for those patients that they don't need uh, any more of it. So the, the bioprinting will allow us to do all these, again, 3D culture systems, put different cell types together, let them speak to each other and see their response because the cell will respond either way. But are you getting the real response from the cells or not? That's actually what we are trying to do. And that's what we really see. Really, the bioprinting is making really strides in the field of reducing animal testing or even eliminating the animal testing because what we test in animals, more than 90% of it does not really translate to humans. So we get a response in a right, but the problem that apparently we do not get the, the realistic and the actual response that we would see in human. So with a technology like bioprinting, trying to recreate 
these 3D models in the same exact way if possible, like the human, at least we will get a realistic response as opposed to a response. So there's a number of things I want to unpack there. At first, I was thinking about how a drug, for example, for cystic fibrosis might affect the lungs, but then you bring up the point as well that you also need to know how that drug will affect the liver and the heart and many other things as well. And then on the flip side of that, if you took a cancer biopsy from someone, you essentially might grow those cells out and create a panel against which you could test multiple drugs to say which of these is going to be the most effective for this patient rather than essentially, as it is now, doing the test in the patient. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it's, there is a lot of advantages over there, as you mentioned, and, and the sky is the limit with regenerative medicine and what you can do in the lab before you even reach to the human. The ultimate goal for everyone is to reach to the human in the safest, most cost-effective process because it's better for the patient, it's better for the company, it's better for the physician and so on. So that's the beauty of regenerative medicine that it combines multiple and multidisciplinary fields together to achieve that main goal. Right. So let's paint a picture of this because I had a, probably a little bit of a misimpression about what you were making with 3D bioprinting. We're not talking about making livers that are the size of even a softball, but some small portion of a liver in 3D. What are the size of those? And then talk about the challenge, vascularization being, I don't know if it's the top of the list or what are the challenges to making all this happen? I think uh, starting with your last question, the vascularization is actually on top of the list, if not the first important factor that everyone is working on. I think what we proved as scientists over the last decade or two, that it's easy for us to put cells and materials together. But what's more challenging is to keep them alive for days, weeks, and even months, or if in the case of organs, you're talking about tens of years, right? So keeping the cells happy and, and functioning is the major challenge. And it really starts with the vascularization, which is basically how cells, they get their signals and they get their nutrients and supplies and they release their toxic materials back to the bloodstream. So it goes uh, to certain organs and get cleared up. So if the vascularization is not optimal and sufficient, then all these processes are broken. And the cells will not get, for example, if you are uh, 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 sweating and your blood volume is changes and the electrolytes is different in your blood at that moment, then the kidney will not know exactly what's going on because it's not getting the cells the right, the right sort of signal to basically hold more fluid from your body until you supply your own body with some water to adjust basically the hemodynamic environment. Your heart is not going to go what's going on with, with your blood pressure at that time and so on. So it's basically the cells, they communicate with each other through these signals that's actually get to them in many different ways, including like the vascularization. Answering your first question, I think that's what makes it very hard to print a whole heart together. Because what we have as a vascular network within the, the heart is not easy to replicate so far. Because you have large blood vessels, they go to a smaller blood vessels and then to much smaller blood vessels and then to capillaries and 
and so on. So you basically really have a tree of blood vessel network. They go to different locations and to every single location within the blood, within the, the organ. So printing them and make sure that they stay intact and open is also the, the challenge. That's why I think the more you scale up as in, in every industry, when you scale up, things doesn't work out as when, we, when it was small. So in the case of biology, when you scale up things, the cell that was okay on the side of that structure and was okay to get nutrients through maybe diffusion or any other mechanisms, now it's actually sitting in the middle of a large organ. So that diffusion doesn't work anymore. So someone has to personally kill and deliver the nutrients uh, and the supplies for the cells. And that's where the, the vascularization comes to play. So with scaling up all these organs and putting the, again, the right cell types in the right location and have a long-term functionality of the cells is really a challenge. It has proven to be a challenge. So that's why we moved to something more realistic. Do we really think that we would be able to print a solid organ like a heart or a kidney or a lung? Maybe we, maybe the hope was great at the beginning and we all pursued all these efforts, but then we found that there are a lot of things that we don't know yet. Every day we discover new knowledge and science and technology that will allow us one day to reach that goal, but we are not there yet. However, when you look at a, a different area where we need to develop drugs, we need to treat diseases and we need actual models that can predict what's going on. So I can create something small and that's all what I need. I don't need a full liver to basically predict the toxicity of a drug. I don't need a full heart to basically see how the cardiomyocytes, they would respond to a certain like dose of drugs. I don't need a whole cancer uh, a mass to basically see how the cells, they're going to respond to a chemo drug. So we started taking it to something that's going to be beneficial to our patients and healthcare and basically provide us with more knowledge and learning process as we go toward the ultimate goal that one day we would be able to 3D print a heart. Yeah, so that makes complete sense. I'm thinking about the roadmap, how you get to that ultimate goal. I think it's, I'm hoping people understand this whole concept of making these essentially microorgans or organoids for testing. Is it a crazy thing to think that if you solve the vascularization problem for one organ, it will translate to all the others? Because that's a common thing. If you could get the cells that you're interested in looking at to grow around the tree you described, that might work for anything because that's a somewhat common process. I don't know how liver cells interact with vasculature versus heart, but. I think I, I would say it will lay the foundation to creating other organs, but it's the, the, the creation of our organs is really unique. Every organ is really different. The way how the heart is being supplied by blood and also how it uh, eject blood, it's really unique versus the, the liver, for example, that is mainly the vascularization is inside to basically achieve the function of filtration and keep the cells alive, the liver. So it's really different. The kidney, for example, the way how the vascularization inside and the filtration process and the lengthy process, 
of the blood going through the, the, the kidney through many loops and structures is really amazing at that time. However, if we are able to figure it out for a one organ, I think by that time we gained a lot of knowledge that will help us to do the second one probably in a shorter period of time and maybe more efficient. So I think that's kind of the challenge that we are actually facing right now. A lot of great research efforts is actually being done in this area on flat structures, on 3D structures, on bigger structures. So we're trying like to solve it as a step-by-step -step process and build on that knowledge to basically scale it up eventually to a full organ. Yeah. Okay. So let's go past the biology now to the engineering aspects of 3D bioprinting. I just don't have any picture in my head of how, what the equipment looks like, the substrates and how, you know, I'm, of course I picture an inkjet printer. <laughs> But you tell me, what does it look like? I think what you pictured is exactly how the process started. I remember when we actually started working on bioprinting, there was no single commercial bioprinting company out there. So all the bioprinting efforts, it was actually lab made. We were literally taking our HP inkjet desktop printer and remove the ink cartridge, remove throughout the ink powder and wash them, clean them, and put them in biomaterial and cells there, and literally trying like to print. That was actually the initial process of actually bioprinting. The concept of bioprinting is basically very simple, that we even did not call it in one of our global issued patents back in 2010-11. We did not call it a bioprinting. The, the, the concept was not basically, or at least common at that time, so we called it a delivery system. So the basic concept of bioprinting that you deliver cells and biomaterial, you deposit them basically, and you use the motors within that uh, bioprinter to basically control the deposition it to basically move in the X, Y, and Z direction. And that's how you end up with a, a 3D structure, as simple as this. So now that we actually have seen a lot of bioprinting companies, they've been innovating very well when it comes to the accuracy of the bioprinting, to how many cells you can print together, to the control of the arms, and the way how you print. So as I mentioned before, we used to have a simple plate and you keep going layer by layer, you keep printing until you end up with, with a structure with a, with a height. Now there is actually different bioprinting processes where you can actually print within a hydrogen or you can like print like, you know, a very small structures and so on. So there is printing with lights as well. You print with the lasers and so on. So there is a lot of different techniques where you can create your structure in, in, in a plate or your structure is being created by light within a material. So basically you basically engrave that structure that you want to print within a material as opposed to deposit a material and everything in between. So really it's very promising now seeing what's going on with bioprinting. And that's actually what gives us the confidence that one day we will be able to get to the, to the concept of bioprinted human tissues and organs, because now we can see what we can do with bioprinting, different materials we can use, different cell types, different even that we can use. If we have a weak mechanical properties from a certain polymer, we can use another polymer that has good mechanical properties, but 
we can combine it with a, another polymer that the cells they like. So now with the ability with the bioprinting to combine different things, then we overcome some of these challenges that we face before as we go. Okay, so I have a couple of geek level questions here. So in this printing machine, can you have essentially replacements for colors? You have a three color printer, you know, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, four colors. Different cell types or materials all in one printer that's putting down some matrix? Yep, exactly. There are some bioprinters out there that you can actually do six different things or even more. It's basically heads. The more heads you add, you can do those, you can use them. Some of them, they can be dedicated to cells. Some of them, they are dedicated to materials. Some of them, they are even mixing the cells and the materials together. And you basically can be printing six different cell material structures together at the same time if, if you plan the structures well. Got it. And then when you talk about a hydrogel, what I'm picturing is a 3D, let's call it jello, for kind of like a tattoo where something's going in and placing things within that 3D structure. Am I envisioning that right? It it can be done that way, or it can be you're actually printing the the cells and the materials, and the material will be actually in a liquid form. So when you are depositing this, you are actually depositing drops. And after like, you know, a few minutes, they can become a gel on their own and the cells are entrapped with it. Or you can print that solution, for example, in a certain uh, reagent. And once the material hit that reagents or touch it, it become a hydrogel. Or you can print a solution while you're printing it, you subject a light on that a solution and within seconds, it starts uh, to become a hydrogen. Or the other approach, as I mentioned, you have a hydrogen material in your plate and you go with a light and you engrave basically the cells and the materials within that structure. So tell me what is a, exactly a hydrogel? Is it is some liquid solution that can be catalyzed to take on a structure? So a hydrogel, basically in material science, it's basically a polymer that has the ability to form a hydrogel structure through creating crosslinks and bonds between the different molecules within that structure. So for example, the, the water is not a hydrogel. If you let the water stay forever, if you change the temperature, if you add other solutions for it, it will most likely not form a hydrogen unless you do something uh, above and beyond to the nature of the water. But for example, a collagen is a polymer that once we actually create that collagen solution and we change the temperature uh, of the solution to 37 Celsius, that hydrogel and adjust the pH of it, that material will become a hydrogel at that time. Gelatin, for example, similar to the concept of desserts and jello, if you put it at low temperature at 4 Celsius, 2 to 8 in the fridge, it will form a hydrogel. If you put it at 37, it will never form a hydrogel. So sometimes those are intrinsic properties of different polymers that you can actually turn them to become a hydrogel uh, uh, material. That was exactly you know, a perfect answer. So my last question is, let's talk about, or have you describe what kinds of breakthroughs scientific or engineering wise are going to accelerate this field? What are you looking for? 
I think it's uh, seeing really what we are doing with the bioprint is definitely one of these areas and breakthroughs that's going to allow us to do many different things. And I think, as we said earlier, it's really the low-hanging fruit. Are, we are probably ambitious to one day to 3D print a heart, but is this something in the foreseeable future? Uh, maybe not. Maybe it needs more work, more science, more new technologies that we need to figure out. When we look at the ability of the bioprinting to maybe give us like the 3D modeling and then 3D disease models, that's actually something that's going to allow us to develop drugs very quickly and more efficiently. So that might be a big breakthrough in the way how we actually develop and reduce the cost and get something really of relevance to, to, to humans during the, the process. When we look at the recent uh, breakthrough of actually implanting a pig heart into someone, that's definitely a, a breakthrough. Now, are we going to see within the, the next five years that this is becoming a standard of care, I would say no. It's going to take at least like probably 10 to 20 years until we start seeing this or at least hear about it like, you know, more common, right? Because the process of validating what genes we need to add, edit for every organ, the genes that you edit for the heart, they are definitely different than the genes that you edit uh, uh, for another organ. The process that happened recently when they actually edited genes for the kidney and versus the heart, they were actually different genes in, in that process. And before that, for a kidney. From the research, we have seen that sometimes the genes, they are not working exactly for each organ. So two, we need to validate that these edited genes, they are not going to create issues in the future and so on. They are not going to give us a problem over that we were not anticipating. So that's where it's going to take some time and effort for these things. But to see that one day, the idea that we can have a, a pig heart implanted into someone, so no one needs to stay on, on, on the organ waiting list and maybe they die. And now that we have a manufacturing uh, uh, place that can ship these organs as needed and save someone's life, it's amazing. It's very inspiring and motivating to continue working in this area. So there are a lot of different things every day we see actually uh, 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 breakthroughs in material science, in cells, IPSCs, and how we can change, create different uh, structures. This morning, I was actually reading an article got published about someone using induced pluripotent stem cells to create a heart graft. As you mentioned, the organoids, the organ on a chip, and so on. So all these are actually breakthroughs that's going to benefit us in many different ways as we continue to learn. Very nice. This has been very informative, eye-opening for me, certainly. I hope for everybody listening. Dr. Mohamed Albana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Chris, for having me. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise.